Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Arielle Fernier. I found her on Twitter because of her real research back in my early Twitter days, and then it turns out that my friend Dr. Craig Miller from episode 27 now works with her at the Illinois Natural History Survey, so he connected us. It's a small world out there, y'all, um, which you will talk about in this episode uh, multiple times. <laughs> because it really is. I was so happy to meet Arielle and have her on the podcast. So she is a wetlands and waterfowl biologist and also currently the director of the Forbes Biological Research Station uh, in Illinois. For those that aren't in the secretive marsh bird world, rails are these often ground running, very elusive birds that live in wetlands. And in my opinion, and I'm sure Arielle would agree with this, they're very cool and also kind of adorable. So in this episode, we talk about Arielle's career, her education, her various research projects along the way with rails and other birds, the romanticization of fieldwork, Isle Royal, and what she's doing now in Illinois. Plus, there's a dive into science fiction at the end, because it turns out we both like sci-fi. Enjoy! I'm excited to talk to you because uh, I'm also, well, I don't do bird work anymore, but my master's was studying water birds and wetland birds and shorebirds, and so it's like right up my alley. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. Yeah, and I'm a wetland bird and waterfowl ecologist for the Illinois Natural History Survey, and I'm also the director of Forbes Biological Station. So. That's cool. What is the Forbes yeah. Biological Station? Um, so it's one of the field stations for the Illinois Natural History Survey. Um, it's the oldest inland field station in North America. It was founded in 1894. Um, and the field station's done a pretty wide variety of things over the years, but kind of over the past 50 years or so has been especially well known for its waterfowl ecology work. Um, Frank Belrose spent a lot of his career there and did a lot of work on wood ducks and also on why lead shot is really harmful for, for waterfowl and for other birds. Um, and yeah, so now we, we still have a strong emphasis on waterfowl, but we do a lot of other wetland bird work as well. That's cool. Yeah, I saw that on your Twitter profile and I was like, yeah, I don't know what that is. But I mean, obviously I know about the Illinois Natural History Survey because I know Craig Miller. But... Right, right. Yeah, yeah. that's that awesome. Yeah, INHS has a bunch of different field stations all over the state, and um, all of the other field stations are very fisheries and river focused. So we're kind of the oddball, but we like it. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, is all the like inland duck habitat there? Is it just like lakes and things like that? Um, there's a lot. Like, so we're located in Havana, Illinois, which is along the Illinois River. Um, and so along the river, there's a fair bit of restored wetland habitat because most of the floodplain was drained and converted into agriculture and, and now some of it has been restored back. Um, and so that's where a lot of the ducks spend time. The diving ducks, um, you certainly will find them on the lakes and, and things like that. But a lot of the dabbling ducks, so like mallards and teal and, and things like that, they need um, pretty shallow water and they need water that has a lot of vegetation in it um, for feeding. So they're not, not so much, at least, you know, Ducks, of course, spend time different parts of the day in different places, but they're going to be primarily out in the wetlands. So That's cool. Yay, wetlands. I wasn't sure, Indeed. you know, like, I've never been to Illinois. I don't know. <laughs> it is, um, it has a well-deserved reputation for being covered in a lot of corn. Um, so. <laughs> well, at yeah. least there's also wetlands. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. That's cool. 
Okay, so the reason I wanted to talk to you in the first place is because I haven't had a lot of like wetland bird people on the podcast. And I'm also just curious, you know, tell me about your work with that and then how you got into this field because it feels like, I don't know, I got into it kind of by accident. So I'm always curious how other people got into it. Sure. Um, so I was, I um, grew up in Northwestern Ohio um, and was really fortunate to um, be able to spend a lot of time with a local bird bander growing up who's doing a lot of passerine or, or songbird banding. So warblers, sparrows, things like that. Um, and that got me really interested in birds. And then when I was in high school, um, that bird bander, whose name is Tom Cashmer, he's a retired school teacher who's become like a I guess semi-professional bird bander in his retirement, um, he started working on a rail project. Um, and so rails are, as I'm sure you know, you know, a group of wetland birds that we don't know a whole lot about. And so that was my first real introduction to spending a lot of time in wetlands and also to rails in general. And I was just really fascinated by them in part because, you know, at least here in North America, we have a lot of the basic information for a lot of our species, right? Whereas for rails, that's not the case. And it was you know, kind of exciting to realize that there are these really interesting birds um, out there where you can still kind of answer those like basic natural history questions. And I thought that that was really cool. Um, and they're also like, I, like, I'm really interested in birds, but I also really like solving puzzles and, you know, figuring out how to study rails is definitely an exercise in puzzle solving. Um, so that part of it really appeals to me as well. You're the second person this weekend to tell me that they were drawn to some wildlife field because they like solving puzzles. And that's what partly what drew me to it too, which I just think is entertaining. Excellent. Excellent. That's awesome. Yeah. Fieldwork is a big puzzle. Trying to find wildlife is a puzzle. Yep. Yep. You've got to, you know, I, I talk about that with, with students all the time is that, you know, you've got to be willing to deal with the fact that we're not always going to have the answers and you're going to have to try and figure it out. So. Yeah, sometimes on the fly. <laughs> yes, often on the fly and often multiple times before you find the right answer. So. Yes, yes, for real. Do you remember what the first rail you saw was like your, you know, your gateway rail? <laughs> it was probably a Virginia rail. So the, the rail trapping project I helped with um, was for Soras and Virginias. And we caught more Virginia rails than Soras. So it was probably a Virginia rail, but I, I'm not entirely sure. So I asked that because when you were talking about that, um, I was thinking about my very first field job and we were studying Henslow sparrows, but accidentally flushed a yellow rail that was out in the pine savannah. Yep. Weird. And that's the first rail I ever saw. And it's like burnt. And I didn't even like acknowledge that till just two minutes ago. <laughs> um, that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's a bird that not a lot of people get to see and, and that most people, I mean, yellow rails spend a lot of time in pine savannas in the winter and a lot of people don't realize that it's pretty cool. Yeah. It was, you know, winter pine savannah. Uh, it was just like, that's not a Henslow sparrow. What does it do? No, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. I Very think cool. maybe only the only yellow rail I've ever seen actually, <laughs> which is even funnier. So where did you go to college and did you major in wildlife? Yeah, so I got a degree in wildlife ecology and management from Michigan Technological University, which is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, up in Houghton. Um, and yeah, it was a very like uh, boots and binoculars kind of program, you know, a lot of time in the field, a lot of emphasis on field skills. We had a semester long field, um, we called it fall camp, fall semester um, experience. And so, yeah, I got, had a lot of opportunities to work in a lot of different labs and 
do a lot of different kinds of research. And then um, I did my senior thesis um, using data that was collected um, on the rail project that I helped with in high school. And so I was able to kind of bring rails back in towards the end and, and do that for my senior thesis as well. So we were working on um, morphometric models, which is just a fancy way of saying a model of body measurements, um, to be able to predict the, the sex of Virginia rails. Because um, most, not all, but most rails are, you can't differentiate the sexes by plumage, or at least not very easily. And so often we need to take body measurements and use like a combination of those to be able to figure out male versus female. That's cool. Yeah, I've never heard it described as like boots and binoculars, but that's very much describes my degree at LSU as well. <laughs> um, heavy emphasis on field skills and IDs and management and things like that. Yeah. 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 And I, I really enjoyed it. I had a really, really good experience there and came out with a lot of really good skills. Um, and, and then, yeah, from there, I went and I worked a field tech job in Hawaii for a couple of months as a bird bander on the big island banding um, honey creepers and the kapukas, which were the forest patches up on the volcanoes. And, um, and then that following, so I graduated in December, went to Hawaii for a couple of months, and then I worked an environmental education job over the summer, and then I started my PhD the following fall. So I went pretty quickly from undergrad to grad, um, which is not something I necessarily recommend to everyone. Um, it ended up working out okay for me, but it was, um, the first year was, was challenging <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but I was really fortunate also to find a PhD project that I was really excited about working with rails during migration on a very applied question of trying to better understand how we can manage wetlands on public land for waterfowl and for rails, which was something that I was really pumped about. And so, yeah, so I did that for five years, which was pretty fun. That sounds uh, parallel to what I did for one of my master's, I did two master's projects. It's a long story, but one of the projects I did was studying all water birds and how they use moist soil units in the Louisiana um, Mississippi alluvial valley nice. uh, and like how to manage it better for when they're migrating through. Um, so it's like, you know, in the same ballpark as what you were doing, which yeah. is, I found to be very interesting because it was like had applications, which I like. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Was that a conscious decision to go or maybe a strategic decision to go straight from a bachelor's to a PhD? Because that's like a daunting step to me. <laughs> yeah, I knew I wanted to get a PhD eventually. Um, and a lot of it came down to, um, I was actually like reaching out to potential advisors for master's programs. And, um, and David Kremitz, who ended up being my PhD advisor, he was like, well, I have this project. It's, you know, currently kind of funded as a master's project, but could probably be a PhD project. And I, I have the good fortune of being good at standardized tests. And so I had good GRE scores, um, which is really not any indication other than that I happen to be good at standardized testing. Um, and he said, well, you have good GRE scores. Why don't you apply as a PhD student? Um, and then, you know, if along the way you decide not to get a PhD, you can always finish with a master's instead. Um, and being a PhD student meant that I got paid better, which was nice. Um, and so it, part of it came down to like, oh, well, there's this opportunity. And, and if it doesn't work out, I can always get my master's. It, it wasn't like I had to like fully commit to just the PhD. Um, and I ended, up, I ended up just going right through and just getting my PhD and it was fine. But having that like plan B um, was really helped a lot in making that decision. Um, but 
but yeah, there's, there's certainly downsides to jumping right into a PhD. Um, you know, everyone expects you to understand how to do everything because they assume that you have the experience of a master's degree and I didn't. And so there was a lot of like me trying to do things and then people being like, why are you doing that? And I'd be like, I don't know, no one told me any different. And they're like, well, you, sh you should know better. And I'm like, how, how would I know better? <laughs> um, but it, it ended up working out really well. I'm always curious, like, you know, cause you need certain degrees to do certain things necessarily. Like I don't need a PhD to do my job and I don't want that. So like, that's why I chose a master's. Um, but you know, if you know where you want to go and you don't necessarily need the master's to get there and you jump straight ahead, like that is maybe the better decision if you're prepared to do that, but it's, yeah. it's tough. So I was just curious. Yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of a tricky trade-off to make, but in my case, it, it seemed to work out pretty well. And I was working with the, with the co-op unit at the University of Arkansas for my PhD. And, and that was something I was really excited about too, because I, I wasn't really interested in getting a PhD to be a tenure track faculty member. I knew that I wanted to get some kind of a position where I would be using my, my PhD to do research that was very applied. And so when I started my PhD, I thought I would someday end up working for USGS. And then I graduated into a pretty dismal federal hiring market. Um, but I mean, but now I've ended up in this position with the Illinois Natural History Survey, which is really a pretty awesome, you know, I'm, I'm in academia, but I'm not on the tenure track. I, the work that I do working really closely with state and federal agencies is really valued in my current position, which is really what I wanted. I wanted a position where I can work with managers and with decision makers and, and do research to help them and have that be like, a you know, a valued part of my job. So it's, it's worked out well, but, um, but yeah, it, everybody's path is a little bit different. Um, you know, I, Perhaps the main advantage to having gone straight to my PhD is that I was, you know, I spent less time in school, um, you know, so now I'm, I'm 30 and I have a full-time job, which is not something that a lot of my friends were able to do because they got master's degrees and then PhDs. And so, but, but at the same time, um, you know, every, everybody's got to do what's best for them. There's no one size fits all to, to kind of graduate education, so. Yeah, definitely. That's probably why I asked that question of everybody, because it's like an example of how everybody's route is different and like they're all valid. It just depends on where you're going and what circumstances are, all that. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. USGS is awesome. And like those co-op units sort of like toe the line between federal government and academics and like because they literally are both. And right. it's really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a really, it's a really unique system. And it's a really, a really powerful one, you know, as a student, it gave me access to a lot of resources and experiences that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And um, yeah, I really, I really encourage folks who are interested in applied kind of science questions to, to look for graduate positions at co-op units, because it's just, you know, it's a kind of professional development that you don't often get in a, like a strictly academic lab. So mm -hmm. yeah, my advisor, as you know, was, is USGS co-op right. uh, person. Um, so I don't know if I know, if like I knew the difference, you know, when I was in grad school, because I was just like overwhelmed with grad school and life and, you know, had sort of an, I had a very atypical experience, I would say, but I, I, that was my first introduction to USGS. And I thought that they were like this really cool organization doing these things at, you know, all these state schools. Um, and then uh, finding out everything they do like later. Um, right. and then, yeah, they do a really, really wide variety of things. So, so mm -hmm. yeah. 
in the USGS doesn't regulate anything. So I feel like they fly under the radar, which is pretty cool. Right. Yeah. It definitely gives some flexibility that like the Fish and Wildlife Service it definitely does not have. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like the Fish and Wildlife Service like constantly has some kind of target on them because of all the, you know, endangered species regulation, if nothing else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I have a lot of colleagues with the service that I really admire. And then I'm also like, I do not want your job. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> I'd like to be more under the radar than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just think it's, it's cool to highlight, I guess, all the different things you can do with a PhD. It's not just like go be a professor at a university. And that's certainly a big one, but there's other things too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's been interesting kind of watching my, cohort all of us that you know kind of graduated within you know a year or so of each other and some of us have gone the tenure track route but most of them haven't gone the tenure track route at like r1 universities a lot of them are at like smaller regional universities or at small liberal arts colleges and then i have a couple of friends who are you know working for the military doing you know biologist stuff on military bases i have other friends who have gone into consulting or working for state agencies and so it's been you know like oftentimes the tenure track job is held up as like the one true goal but it's it's been good to see everybody you know being successful and finding you know a position that that suits them and what they're interested in so it's been an, an adventure yeah that's cool uh, something I didn't know until after I was getting out of grad school was that there's a lot of uh, wildlife work done on military property. Like I worked in, um, yeah. yeah, I worked at Patuxent Naval Air Station studying grassland birds and little grassy strips between runways and taxiways, like meadowlarks and things were nesting there. Yeah. Just like, okay, yeah, I'm totally just monitoring grassland birds while these jets fly everywhere. It was very weird, but you know perfect habitat for them yeah and in a lot of places that is where there's really good protection on habitat because the military doesn't want just like you know regular people out and about on those lands and so the amount of disturbance is often weird because there's military things happening but it's a lot lower than it would be anywhere else and so some birds are really able to thrive in that environment which is pretty cool yeah it was really interesting um i had no idea till then but it's really cool and I see, so like I'm in Louisiana, right? I see a lot of jobs for, um, you know, biologists at Fort Polk here. Sure. There's so much going on there, but I don't want to live at Fort Polk. So, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, as with any job, you've got to assess the, the full range of trade-offs that come with it, yeah. right? So. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of things are y'all doing at the Forbes Biological Station? So the station, there's myself and four other full-time scientific staff. And then we also currently have um, three graduate students that I advise and then another grad student that started well before I started here. Um, and so we've got a pretty big team. And so we do a lot of projects. Um, we fly an aerial waterfowl survey on the Illinois and Mississippi rivers. We've been doing that since 1948. It's one of the longest running aerial surveys. Um, and so that counts waterfowl and a bunch of other water birds, which is pretty cool and gets used for a pretty wide variety of things. Um, we currently have a wood duck project going on, trying to better understand what the post breeding season looks like for wood ducks. So they're, they're done raising their young for the year, but they haven't migrated yet. Um, and how are they using the landscape, especially across like public lands? What are their movements like? What's their survival like? Um, 
it's, you know, spring is finally coming to Illinois right now. And so the diving ducks are starting to come in, the scop and the canvas backs. And we'll be, um, every year we band a bunch of diving ducks as a part of kind of a flyway wide effort to get more bands out on those birds. Um, Graduate student-wise, um, we have Ryan Askren, who's a PhD student at the University of Illinois, working on Canada geese in the Chicagoland area and trying to understand urban geese and how, how we can use non-lethal harassment techniques to discourage them from being places we don't want them to be, especially around airports and things like that, to prevent you know, goose airplane collisions, things of that nature. Um, we have Cheyenne Beach, who's a grad student at Western Illinois, and she's working on lesser scop and trematodes, which are a parasite, and trying to understand the sublethal effects. So we know that trematodes can kill scop, but for individuals that are infected by them but don't die, like what are the longer term consequences of them? Um, we have Lauren Larson, who's also a master's student at Western, and she's working on lesser scop as well and trying to understand what foods they're using on a couple different pools on the Mississippi River um, and better understand kind of how fluctuations in the river are impacting food availability since those pools are really important stopover sites for lesser scop at like the continental scale. And then we also have Stephanie Schmidt, who's a master's student at the University of Illinois. She's working on um, least bitterns and common gallinules and trying to understand how water level management impacts their nest success during the summer. So she's actually putting these like little tiny security cameras out on nests and trying to figure out what predators are eating the eggs or eating the young and then relating that back to water level management. Um, and she's finding some really interesting patterns where early in the season when water levels are higher, it's more snakes. And then as the wetland dries out over the summer, the mammals come in, um, which kind of has some interesting, so least bitterns than common gallinule are state endangered species here in Illinois. And so that has some pretty interesting um, applications for how we can create better habitat for them and try and you know help them not get completely decimated. Uh, we have a large project right now on true metabolizable energy in a bunch of different waterfowl species. So trying to figure out how much energy ducks get from different food resources so that when managers are trying to figure out what or like how to manage a wetland, they can say, all right, do I want to encourage plant A or plant B? Well, plant A is a lot more, you know, they get a lot more calories out of it. So maybe I should encourage plant A. That way there's plenty of, you know, food available for, their, for these different species of ducks. So we're doing a bunch of work on that. Um, we do, we have a rail project that's starting up on catching birds during migration and putting tags on them and trying to understand their migratory timing and their stopover use. Um, where we are here in central Illinois, we're primarily a migratory stopover location for rails. There's probably a small handful that breed in the area, but they're mostly moving through and migrating. Um, we have a project um, where we go out and we do um, bird surveys and assessments of wetland reserve program easements all over the state. And we, we make management plans for each of the easements to help them kind of like reach their full potential in providing wetland habitat for migratory birds. Um, 
We do a fair bit of monitoring for the Nature Conservancy. So we're located um, on the Illinois River and like basically straight across the river is the Emmaquan Preserve, which is a really large um, Nature Conservancy wetland restoration site. And so we do a lot of work there for the Nature Conservancy, helping them understand how the site is responding to different forms of management. There's a lot going on. <laughs> there is, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've got each, each staff member has a couple of different projects that they lead and then I've got stuff that I'm leading. Um, oh, I have a project down in the Gulf as well, um, looking at black rails and model ducks and yellow rails and trying to understand how prescribed fire in, in high marsh. So in the part of the coastal marsh that's inundated slightly less frequently by tidal zones, um, trying to figure out how those three species are impacted by fire. Um, and that's just kind of getting off the ground this winter. Um, we were planning to start field work last spring and then things got slowed down because of COVID, of course. And so that's really kind of getting going as well. And so that's been a really fun one too. That's cool. Where is the Black Rail Project at? We're doing field work in all five U.S. Gulf states. So there's work going on in Louisiana, um, which is being led by um, Eric Johnson at Audubon, Louisiana. And then Andy Nyman, who's at LSU, is also a part of that. I'm assuming you probably know Andy. Um, yeah, I work for Eric. It's such a small world. It really is. Yeah. I figured if it was here, Eric was involved because I... I know that that um, Audubon, so I work on the project called CRIMS, the Coastwide Reference Monitoring System. Yeah. Um, I know that they use some CRIMS data to try to find, like target black rail, like find like ideal habitat and then go to those places and try to find black rails. And like that was very helpful to them. Yeah. Those are all the details I know, <laughs> and then, which I just find interesting, so. For sure, yeah. But yeah, so we got work going on in Louisiana and the other, the other US states as well. So, so yeah, um, we'll be doing, doing work from basically now through 2024 on that project. And hopefully by the end of it, we'll have a lot better idea of what's going on with all three species. Um, you know, model ducks are a lot better studied overall compared to black rail, but there's still a lot left to learn, um, especially in states like Mississippi and Alabama, where the kind of anecdotal reports from birders is that model ducks have been expanding into the area over the past decade or so, but they're, we don't really study, like the model ducks in Louisiana and Texas are like, you know, they're surveyed once or, you know, mm -hmm. every so often, and they have a pretty good idea of population size. So it's going to be interesting to see what we learn over the next couple of years on that project. Um, but yeah, that's a fun one too. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot to learn. Yeah, I know. And I know that model docs are, you know, pretty well studied around here, but I don't know about anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a remarkable amount of work done in Louisiana and Texas. Um, but I mean, you know, like any species, there's still a lot to learn even in those places. Um, you know, we don't, don't even necessarily have a great way of like confirming breeding happening at a site for model ducks. Like there's some different ways to kind of survey for it, but you know, we're gonna be, right now we're kind of in a pilot season. So, you know, kind of that initial first year where you're trying out a bunch of different things and kind of seeing what works. And, um, and yeah, I mean, even for model ducks, we're trying out some different survey protocols to see you know, what, what's that trade-off between the most information we can get, but also like, you know, field technicians also get to sleep sometimes. So. Right. You need them awake to do this. <laughs> yes. Yes. We're, we're big, we're big proponents of the field technicians actually, you know, having time where they're not working. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is maybe a tangent, but I feel like, I mean, having studied wetland birds in Louisiana for what seems like a zillion years now, I didn't even know black rails existed until like, two years ago, which I feel like is ridiculous that I didn't know that, but they're just, 
I can, I've never seen one. I spend, I don't know, half of my life in a wetland and I've never seen one. They're very elusive. They're, they're very elusive. And even amongst the rails, they're very elusive. Um, they don't fly very frequently. They don't vocalize very frequently. And, and like a lot of the rails, a lot of it comes down to if you're not very specifically looking for them, you're probably not going to find them. And so, because I know when Eric Johnson with Audubon Louisiana started doing his Black Rail project, which, which started before the one that we're now collaborating on, you know, there were just kind of some historic records and kind of some one-offs here and there. And that's when, you know, he started trying to do something more systematic and discovered that there's actually a pretty good population of them in Louisiana, like certainly way more than anyone would have guessed. And that's, you know, partially a function of Eric being really good at his job and finding them, but also a function of, well, no one was looking for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of the, the classic story of most rail projects is when you don't find what you don't look for. And so, um, which happened during my PhD work as well. So we, we were primarily focused on SORAs and Virginia rails. And I remember my advisor told me like, well, if you see a handful of yellow rails over the next couple of years, that'll be really exciting. And I came back after my first field season and we found 33 of them. And, and everyone was like, what? No, you're seeing meadowlarks. You're seeing something else. That's not blah, blah, blah. And so the next year we got the permits together and we went out, we started catching them. And I was like taking, I'm like, see, it's the yellow rail. Um, and it was just another example of like, they don't vocalize in the fall. So unless you're actually going out into the wetlands and flushing them up, you're never going to find them. So people had been around yellow rails on these public wetlands probably all the time, but it just never, you know, you don't find them if you're not out there looking for them. So that was a, you know, kind of a fun surprise. Yeah, I think calling them secretive marsh birds is not a strong enough word. Like, what is more <laughs> intense than secretive? <laughs> yeah, like sometimes I use the word elusive, but that also doesn't seem to like fully capture it. Um, but yeah, it does. It does seem very intentional on their part. Like they really, they don't want to give up their secrets. So yeah, like surely I have been in the same wetland as a black rail. Like for the, you know. 12 years I've been doing this, but I wasn't looking for them. So. Right. Yep. And they probably just sat there and laughed and were like, ah, perfect. Good. Probably. <laughs> yeah. That's probably exactly what happened. Um, yeah. And I'm no bird whisperer like Eric. So, you know, yeah. I'm pretty sure he speaks all bird. Yes. Yes. No, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. He's who I worked with on the Henslow project I referenced. Um, oh, very cool. When he was doing his PhD, I was undergrad and was like a student worker for him. And it was fantastic. Very cool. That's cool. It really is a small world. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. One of Craig's friends, we went to the Wildlife Society conference a bunch of years ago, and one of Craig's friends was there, and he was, he told me this, and it just is like the truest thing I've ever heard. He's like, I may not know you, but the wildlife world is so small that like, I can make two phone calls and know everything about you. And I was like, yeah, that's terrifying, but also true because there's not that many of us. And it's such a network. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting talking with students and technicians about that because they're like, well, you know, like I put down like these three people as references and I'm like, yeah, that's good. Like you should definitely pick people who are willing to like, you know, speak to your strengths and give you a good reference. But you also need to realize that all of the people you didn't list as references, if I know them, I'm also talking to those people. Like, you know, this, this world is so incredibly small that it's, it's pretty unusual for me to get an application where there isn't somebody on, in, your, in your work history. I'm like, oh yeah, I know them. wonder what they have to say. So, which I think, you know, 
in a lot of ways can be good, but I think especially when you're starting out is also a little bit intimidating. So, yeah, I think intimidating is what I would have, how I would describe that when I was an undergrad, I was like, oh, I better be on my game then, you know, <laughs> you know, continue to be a hard worker and make good impressions and, you know, yeah. stay on top of it. But at the same time, it makes collaborating a lot easier, I feel like, because you're like, oh, I already know this person. I'll just call them and see, you know, right. X, Y, Z or whatever. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And that's, you know, how all of us, you know, to a large extent, stay successful in our, in our jobs, right? Like none of us have the skills to do any of these projects on our own. We always need to bring in other people who have that missing piece of expertise. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I feel like, you know, wildlife science at least doesn't happen in a vacuum. And if it does, that's probably a red flag. <laughs> like, right. Right. Yeah. Okay, I have a question. Do you have a favorite rail? Can you even pick one? <laughs> that is an unfair question. I don't know, or maybe like your favorite rail of today. <laughs> um, so Sora's were the main subject of my dissertation work, and I always have a real sweet spot for them. I think yellow rails are just really, really fascinating and also just really pretty. When you get them in the hand, there's, there's like different... Color morphs is too strong of a word, but there's definitely like some variation among individuals and you'll get these really like darkly colored individuals who have this really beautiful like brown and like is umber the right color, like like a burnt yellow striping to them that's really beautiful. Um, so I really like yellow rails too, but yeah, I mean, any, any rail is a great rail. I agree. I was just curious. It's an unfair <laughs> question. You're right. <laughs> Do you have advice for someone that would be interested in a career like yours or doing, you know, bird work or anything like that? For folks who are interested in kind of research careers, like long-term, I think trying to make sure that you're building skills along the way that are transferable is, is probably the most frequent piece of advice I give. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in my PhD getting quantitative skills, which have continued to be really useful and, and were also things that if I wasn't fortunate enough to get a full-time position, I could have taken into the consulting world. I could have taken those skills a lot of different directions, right? And that can be really helpful. I also could have taken them out of the bird world and, you know, got worked on a, on a herp project or a fish project or, or whatever, right? And so trying to find ways to, to balance, you know, building your expertise and whatever it is that you're interested in, but also making sure that you're balancing that with, with, with skills, be it field skills, lab skills, quantitative skills, but making sure that you're not just coming out of your degree program with a lot of like expertise-based knowledge, but also having, having those building blocks goes a long way. And it's, I think especially in a PhD, you often have more flexibility to do that. It can be tough to do in a master's program, but in a PhD, you can, you know, maybe tailor your coursework to something or, you know, take a semester and, you know, work on, work on those things in more depth. But, but that's, that's where I've seen a lot of my friends who, who left traditional academic jobs after their PhD really be able to kind of pivot and be successful is they're like, well, you know, I don't have expertise in X organism, but I have expertise in all these different kinds of data analysis or in all these lab skills. And I'm sure I can learn this and apply this to it without a problem. And they've been able to use that and turn that around into, you know, pretty successful careers. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, it also works for someone like who wants a job like mine, where I do a lot of field work. So for sure. Maybe I'm not doing bird work anymore, but I already knew how to ID well in plants and know how to 
tow a trailer and, you know, things like that are all transferable. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And, and oftentimes, you know, even if you don't know the wetland plants of the particular place where that job is, having some familiarity with how to sit down and learn plants already mm-hmm. can be a really good selling point in an interview, right? Like, oh, I already taught myself all the wetland plants of Missouri. That's a starting point for learning the wetland plants of Louisiana. Like yeah. they're going to be different, but at least you have a reference point, right? So. Yeah, it's not starting from scratch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was talking to somebody the other day about that. And I was just like, yeah, I mean, I'm not, maybe my field work is different, but like all these things I already know how to do are the same, but the data collection part might be a little different, you know, so sure. all of that's valuable. Um, I don't really have any quantitative skills, but I could see how that would be very similar. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it can, it can be a useful one. And like during my postdoc, I did a little bit of like stats consulting and stuff on the side too. And so it's it's just a skill set that like people are often willing to give you money for, which is, you know, yeah. as an early career scientist, not a bad thing. So yeah, I mean, I think I would pay someone to do that for me because I don't want to do it. <laughs> right. There's a there's a lot of people who don't have that skill set or don't have the time to obtain that skill set and they will give you money for it, which is great. So yeah. No, that's perfect. <laughs> that was really, really good strategizing or planning or whatever you want to call it on your part. So I've been mentoring an undergraduate and every semester it's a different one through the LSU College of Ag, which I think is a really great program that they do. And she and I have been talking about role models a little bit. And so yeah. do you have a role model? And if so, will you tell me about them? I feel like I have so many. I've been really fortunate in that regard. So as an undergrad, I... I worked in a pretty wide variety of labs, um, but I worked a lot um, for one PhD, well, at the time PhD student, she's now a professor, Um, but Amber Roth, who's now at the University of Maine. And she was a huge role model to me because she she didn't go straight through to her PhD. She worked for, um, for the DNR for a while. And so she had a lot of perspective um, and also, was really excited about the application of her PhD work because she had those ties with agencies and she had that. And so she was a really good mentor to me because that was the kind of work that excited me. And so she was able to help me kind of see how some PhD positions were gonna be better suited to that than others um, and gave me a lot of really great advice. And she was just also a really good boss and a good person and has continued to be, you know, a big cheerleader for me and a good sounding board. Um, my undergraduate advisor, Joe Bump, um, who at the time was at Michigan Tech, but is now at the University of Minnesota, um, was a really huge help as well and and really helped to to model like good leadership and and good um, and good mentoring. You know, his I, I worked as a field technician one summer for one of his PhD students and, and all of us. So Joe, his PhD student, um, at the time, my boyfriend, now my husband and I were like living on Isle Royal doing work together. And, and Joe was really big on like, we work really hard, but we also like, we take care of each other, you know, like we make time to eat, we make time to rest. Like, yes, this is going to be very difficult, but and that made a really big impression on me. And because, you know, a little over a year later, I was leading my own PhD student field season. And I tried to model that with my technicians because there were days where we needed to work really long hours and it was really hard. But I always tried to, you know, somehow find that balance of making sure that everybody had time to rest and to eat and to just like 
recover from that too, right? And so he he made a really big impression on me and has continued to be a, a really great mentor of mine. I guess those are the two that that really stand out. But but all along the way, I mean, throughout my PhD, you know, David Crummins was my PhD advisor, and you know, being a federal scientist in academia, he always had a different perspective on things, which was really helpful. Um, and he was also not someone who like pushed his PhD students into tenure track jobs, perhaps because he didn't have one. And so that was really helpful to me because I knew that wasn't what I wanted. And so that was really useful. Yeah, I guess those, those are the folks who, who initially jumped to mind. But I mean, I've been really fortunate all along the way to have folks who have been really generous with their time and, and really generous with trying to help me, you know, kind of navigate things. I've, I've often been young in what I'm doing. So like as an undergrad, I led a field crew. Um, and so I was working for Amber at the time. I led a field crew. It was me and two other people. I was younger than both of the other two people. And one of the other people was a, was a graduate student and she needed to learn how to ban birds before she went off to do her field season. And Amber helped me strategize how to, how to be that kind of leader, even though I was much younger but do it in a really collaborative and respectful way, which ended up being really helpful because it wasn't until I think my fourth PhD field season that I had a technician that was younger than me. And even now all of my staff are older than I am. And so, you know, having people along the way who were willing to, to talk about kind of some of the awkwardness that comes from that and to help you realize like part of it is just building good, respectful, trust-based relationships and not feeling like you need to be like, I have all the power, right? Like, you know, which, which is pretty much never a good way to lead anyway, but I think especially when you're leading from a from a position of being younger than people. Like if you try to come in and be like, I'm better than you, like that's just not, it's not gonna work out. I think that's an interesting point that like, you know, being the leader isn't necessarily age related. It's more like how you communicate with the team and how you all function and like the sort of environment you foster. Yeah, I, it sounds like I would really like your leadership style. Cause that's how I try to, how I try to like, I mean, they're not really the leader of the team. We sort of co-lead, but like that's sort of how we both work in my working space. Yeah. We're all doing this together. It doesn't matter who's older than who, like, you know, we're in this together and let's just work for the same goal. And um, it seems yeah. to work really well for us. So yeah, it's, it's worked out well for me too, but it, it definitely requires like, I think a different level of communication than yeah. perhaps some more like older school leadership styles which is often where I think some of the tension has come from at, at different points in my career where people are like, oh my gosh, we have to talk all the time and do all the, and I'm like, yeah, we have to communicate. Like if we don't yeah. communicate, like things are going to go sideways and that's not helpful to anyone. Like, and, um, and yeah, as someone who like, you know, very, you know, as a, as a high schooler, I was like, I want to be a bird bander. Like that was what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to deal with people. I, you know, and now I manage a team of like 10 plus people, depending on the time of year and how many field techs we have. And it's like, no, like most of my job is managing people and communicating. Um, I do get to hold birds occasionally, but it's actually not a very big part of my job anymore. So <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you've reached that part of your career where like, you're not doing as much field work, but like you have the option to, if you want to one day, maybe. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, especially being at a field station where, you know, for many of our projects, the work is very local, makes it a lot easier to be like, oh yeah, I have an afternoon, I can go help. Or, you know, like last summer with COVID, we had the station like broken up into pods. And so I actually got to do a fair bit more field work than normal because I needed to support my pod. That way the other pods could remain separate. Mm-hmm. That way COVID didn't like take down the whole field station, which thankfully didn't happen. But yeah, but it was great. You know, it's like, all right, I get to go out a couple nights a week and go try and catch bitterns. And if it had been a normal summer, I probably wouldn't have done that as much. So. Yeah. So I, I, I do, like I said earlier, like probably 50% of my job right now is field work, but like nice. I've been doing this job or a job very similar to it for like almost 11 years now. And I'm like, like, I love field work, but I'm kind of the point where like, I just want a week or four where I'm not in the field. It takes a lot out of you. Yeah. yeah, It gets like, it's exhausting in a lot of ways. I mean, I love it, but like there are days where I'm just like, I don't want to have to pack my lunch and dinner and breakfast and I'll take it on the road with me, you know? Yeah. Uh, So I'm trying to figure out like, how do I, advance my career or what am I going to do post fieldwork Rachel like what is my career going to look like and it's like kind of a weird thing because I could manage projects that's probably what I could do but I don't want to like create the projects (laughs) yeah it is it is and I think especially because our field you know romanticizes fieldwork so much I mean often that's the thing that not everybody, but most of us wanted to do when we started. Mm -hmm. I think there can be kind of this weirdness around transitioning out of that stage of your career where everyone's like, oh, you're going to miss this. And, you know, undoubtedly you will some days, you'll be, you'll reminisce about what you're doing. And I do that sometimes too. And then I remember how like exhausted I was and how like grumpy I was sometimes. And it's like, you know, it's not, it's not all sunshines and rainbows. Right. So yeah. yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. I'm like, yeah, I think I would still like the option to do field work on, you know, like a perfect weather day or something. Right. Exactly. <laughs> when there's no bugs and it's like, you know, 65 and sunny and beautiful. Exactly. Out and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where it's, you know, probably not going to lightning on top of me. Um, right. Things like that. But it's, it's, it's a tough transition to navigate, I'm finding, because whoever replaces me, you know, eventually down the road needs to be trained. And so it's not like in a meeting, you can't just like snap your fingers and switch it without like, right. you know, maybe relocating or switching jobs. And I don't want to do that. So uh, it's tricky. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what happens though. Cause I mean, I can't do this forever. I mean, I guess maybe I could, but I don't really want to forever. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and you're, you know, gaining skills over time that could be really useful in project management and things like that too, right? Like you've got the perspective of having done all of that for many, many years. So you know what can go right and what can go wrong. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in previous jobs, I'm like, I, this is what I needed the manager to do. Like, this is the thing that was missing. So now I'm like, okay, if I was in that role, this is what I would want you know, th- I can see both sides of it almost now at this point. Sure. Um, so I don't know. We'll see what happens. But well, well, good luck. That's a yeah. That's a tricky one to navigate. But I'm sure you'll you'll find something great. Yeah, I think it'll be fine. It's just good. It's gonna take a while. Um, but that's okay because maybe it's more of a like weaning me off of field work than like cold turkey off of field work. Sure, sure. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know which is better. We'll see. I guess. Um. So you said you worked at Isle Royal, um, and the only thing I know about that is like, you know, the lengthy moose, wolf, predator, prey study. What were you doing there? 
Um, so we were setting up these exclosures to keep moose and beaver from eating like particular parts of some of the inland lakes on Isle Royal to try and understand like what role moose and beaver herbivory was having on the plant communities. Um, so yeah, so basically my job was to put a bunch of like fencing and posts and stuff on my back and carry it to these lakes. And then we would set up, I don't know exactly how big they were, maybe like 20 foot across, great big circular, Kind of, it kind of looked like a giant tank, but it was made out of fencing just to like keep the moose out of one half or the moose out of the whole thing and the beavers out of one half of it. And then over time, Brenda, who was the PhD student on that, would monitor the plant communities and how that varied compared to like the rest of the lake, which, you know, the animals had complete access to. So, um, so yeah, it wasn't a part of like the, the formal like Isle Royal wolf study, um, but was, you know, certainly a part of you know, better understanding that whole system. That's cool. I was just curious because like I said, the only thing I know about is that like long-term study and it's just such an interesting thing because it's, uh, you know, mostly an unconnected island except for when the lake happens to freeze over whatever right. in winter, which I don't think is every year, but it could be wrong. Um, it's happening less and less frequently with climate change, of course. So yeah, I, I believe that this winter they did have an ice bridge for a while during that like Arctic vortex. But mm -hmm. um, but in the in the years that John and I were undergrads at Michigan Tech, I don't think there was an ice bridge any of those years. So I mean, you know, like everywhere, it's getting a little warmer. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> which makes the depths of August even worse here. Um, which is yep. what how I describe it, which having, you worked in Mississippi, right? Like, yeah, I, I lived in Biloxi for two yeah. years, yeah, so. You know the depths of August then. <laughs> it's one of the reasons that I um, was looking for a job to leave Mississippi. I, I was not built for Southern summers. It's just not in my like Midwestern physiology to deal with that, so. That's fair. There are days in the summer where, um, I don't know, it feels like 110 and it's like, 85 90% humidity I'm like I don't even understand how I'm alive in this <laughs> like it makes no sense I human beings were not designed for that <laughs> no it's really miserable um okay I have two last fun questions for you okay um I decided that uh, I wanted to know more about the people behind the research and so my first question is uh what are your hobbies I enjoy crochet. Um, so I finished an afghan recently and I often make baby blankets for my friends for having babies. Um, I really enjoy cooking. Um, I'm lactose intolerant and so a lot of my love of cooking comes from making food that I can actually eat that tastes delicious. I enjoy, you know, a wide variety of outdoor activities like many biologists do. I'm a birder and I like hiking and camping. Um, really enjoy gardening. I'm a big reader, both like fiction and nonfiction. I read a lot of like science fiction and fantasy. We've been really getting into puzzles during COVID, which has been fun. I don't know if I describe that as a hobby, but it's something I've spent a lot of time doing in the past six months. <laughs> I think it counts at least for now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how, I mean, I, I've always enjoyed doing puzzles. I just don't think I've ever done like six puzzles back to back to back. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, but yeah, especially this winter, that's been a nice thing to kind of focus in on. Mm -hmm. so. 
Yeah, I've been doing that too. Uh, my mom keeps finding puzzles I don't know where and mailing them to me. <laughs> nice. You know, it's like I just go sit at this table and drink a cup of tea and listen to audiobook and work on a puzzle until I don't want to anymore, which is usually a couple hours. There you go. It's really cozy and I like it. Um, so you said you read, which is perfect because the second question is, what are you reading right now? Um, so I'm currently reading The City We Became, um, which is by N.K. Jemison or Jemison. Um, so it's a like urban fantasy novel, like um, alternative reality kind of a thing. It's, it's really interesting. There's like these people who have become like the embodiment of the five boroughs of New York City and they have to like save New York City. I haven't figured out. I'm assuming they're going to save it at the end of the book. I'm not quite there yet. But. That's interesting. I've, I've never read anything by her, but I know she's like a big major sci-fi author and I've, she's her, on my list to read. So maybe I'll start there. Yeah, no, it's, that's, I, it, the book just came out. I don't know if she has anything that's more recent, um, but yeah, her, her earlier trilogies are really amazing too. She's got a, a really unique way of going about world building. Um, that's really fun. So I like that. Yeah. That might actually be the book I put a hold on in my library. There you go. Uh, actually. It, it is yeah nice. <laughs> there's a long wait <laughs> perfect um yeah I asked that question because I read more than maybe is healthy and so I'm always looking for more things to read so it's partially a selfish question there you go um I just finished a book called Accidentals by Susan Gaines um and it's a it's a novel about um this young young man whose mother moves back to Uruguay and then he follows her and they're like working on like the family ranch and then he discovers a new species of rail <laughs> which is like mostly like a subplot to like the larger plot about his family and his heritage like it's an interesting book but yeah there's a, a rail in the book which is pretty pretty wonderful I mean that's a selling point for me right there how often do you go. find a rail in a book that's not specifically about birds <laughs> exactly exactly so so yeah the author does a really nice job of like showing like the joy of bird watching and of like spending really getting to know a place so that you start to notice like new things in that place you know so yeah it's a, it's a cool book okay awesome i'm gonna check that one out too when you're talking about world building i i read a lot of kim stanley robinson's books um he has sort of built a i don't know a world like where all of his books seem to kind of coexist in the same world um, that's cool he, he just had a book come out that i'm currently reading it's called the ministry for the future it's about this I'm only like 5% in, so I'm not very far. But basically, um, they take the IPCC report and then the Paris Agreement and all of these things, and then they form a ministry for how they're, as a world, going to fix this. And that's as far as I've gotten. So Interesting. <laughs> it seems really interesting. Um, yeah, and he has a bunch of books about, and they all have some sort of like ecological or climate change sort of narrative in them or like, I don't know like there's a one of his books is called New York 2140 and it's like what New York City would look like in the year 2140 after all of the sea level rise and all of these things that have happened and it was right. like terrifying and interesting and also like a little bit hopeful because he he imagined all this like interesting technology which I thought was cool yeah uh, what so 
Um, my husband and I have recently been enjoying watching The Expanse, which is a, a series that's now on Amazon Prime. Um, but it's based on a series of novels and it's set, I think in the 2300s. And it's largely like science fiction, like, I mean, I mean, obviously it's science fiction, but like it's largely like on ships and like in different parts of the universe and all these things are happening. But a, but a part of it takes place on earth and, and they just like, without a lot of fanfare, just like sprinkle in like climate change happened. And here's the way that the entire globe operates differently because of that. And it's, it's interesting to see a book where that's just kind of like in the background. It's not even like the main deal, but yeah, they like the, the UN or whatever is like still in New York city. And so a fair bit of it takes place in New York and there's these like giant walls around everything, keeping the water out. And it's just like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting how that, how that book and how New York 2140 imagined the same place differently. Of course, 2140 would be, you know, whatever, 120 years before the other one. Sure. In that book, like New York's just flooded and like the first 10 or 15 floors of all the skyscrapers are just underwater now. And instead of cars, they have, you know, boat taxis and right. It was just like really interesting. And, you know, everything runs on solar power and all these other things. And it was kind of interesting to see like this could happen. It's not necessarily good, but. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it, I mean, there's just, there's so many different ways that we might find to adapt. Right. And, and they're not all going to look the same and they all right. have different trade-offs to yeah. put it lightly. That's a very good way to put that. <laughs> without going into like a depressing discussion about it. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been so nice to meet you. Yeah, it's good to get to chat with you as well. Yay, rails and wetlands. Indeed. Well, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Yeah, you too, thank you. Hey y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, and how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast, so you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com. Or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter. Follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there. And just, you know, have a good day. And thank you for listening.